Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 8, Foster Care. Diana's darkness shrouded our journey across the country, so why we ended up on the tattered edges of some unknown metropolis, possibly Chicago, is unknown to me. But we stopped briefly to live in a rectangular-shaped house in a neighborhood that felt haunted and gloomy. The gloominess was aggravated by the ghostly feel of the impending fall, and because we didn't stay long, there are only two things I remember about the place. The first was a fight that my mother orchestrated between Kathy, Tony, and me. The second thing, of course, its rectangular shape. She wanted us to wrestle each other on the living room floor while she, Lisa, and Paul watched. Kathy and Tony were on one team, and I was on the other. The order had been given, but none of us could make the first move. Something about her demand felt perverted and corrupt, and we all knew it. She egged Kathy and Tony on by reminding them of what a selfish asshole I was, and to give it to me really good. Tony's eyes went bright with anger, and then he grabbed my calves with his arms, and I toppled to the ground. At first it was wrestling, and then it was a beating, the kind of beating he had been taught by a mother whose love left your body the colors of night, black and blue. Kathy didn't want to have anything to do with it, but she knew she damn well better. Once Tony got me on the floor, she half-heartedly joined in. Tony could have gone on for hours, but thankfully, Paul came to his senses and put an end to the insanity. Diana told Kathy and Tony to sit with them on the couch, and I was ordered to stand in front of them at attention and speak up for myself. Of course I didn't know what she wanted to hear, so I stammered and hammered, hemmed and hawed. I told her that two against one was not fair, and she didn't like that, so she dared me to run away. She said it in a way that was more of a command, so I knew I better get packing. Feeling completely entranced, this could be my chance to get away from her, and yet frightened by the whole notion, I packed slowly, trying to come up with a plan. I didn't know the neighborhood or even what state we were in, and I tried to remember what landmarks I had seen and where I could sleep if I ended up stranded in the cold. I walked with my suitcase and my trepidation to the front door while the whole family sat staring at me. So typically of our family, no one, including Paul, was brave enough to say goodbye. As I opened the door and stepped out onto the front porch, I moved in slow anticipation, waiting for Diana to start screaming at me. It would be just like her to flip on a coin and ask me, where the hell do you think you're going? As if this whole thing was my idea. But she didn't say a word, and I took one step at a time, 
my feet whispering down a broken pathway made of emancipated earth sprouting through the disintegrating cracks of asphalt. I felt free. I really did. I walked around with my suitcase, heart pumping, and my brain excited by the possibility of a new life all on my own. I was out there for a while before the sun began to set and before Paul's voice came blowing along on the breeze. He walked up to me and told me to come home, as if I had a home, and then he put his arm around my shoulder and we walked back in silence. Diana had the nerve to take me to therapy after the fight. She told the therapist that I had tried to run away. For her, there wasn't a backstory. I was just a troubled kid who did provocative things. And as I listened to her absurdities, I waited for the therapist to get it, but he never did. His professional eye could not see the truth about Diana, and I couldn't really be honest for fear of the consequences. Instead, I just took the opportunity to babble on to someone who was paid to listen. After my therapy session, we had a picnic in a large park outside of the office building, which reminded me of Grant Park and is why I thought we might be in Chicago. Diana pranced around like a proud rooster as if she had done something really brave and motherly. I pretended that I had a breakthrough, and now I knew how to behave, and we played out the charade of our assigned roles while eating sandwiches on the lumpy grass. She was the loving, blameless mother who tried so hard to raise a damaged and destructive child, and I was the now-tamed lion who had the power and potential to corrupt the other children in the family. I knew it was a game and a delusion, but I didn't mind playing, not if it meant at least one calm day in this family. Along the endless roads of America, I was learning a trick to achieve equilibrium. Leave the past in the past and do your best to forget. This way, every day was a clean slate. No history, no attachment, no expectations. Every day, my mother had the potential to be a wonderfully sane and loving mother, and I had the potential to be a happy child. And so, as if waking up from a bad dream, poof, we were gone from the dingy, ghostly, rectangular-shaped house and the state in which it resided. We traveled to somewhere new, and I felt optimistic that this time our lives would be nice and normal. In my mind, it was just a matter of finding the right house and the right state, a place where Diana felt comfortable and at home. So far, we had not found that place. It's a place for us somewhere a place for us but our new abode looked promising it was clean and bright and sunny and tucked discreetly into a wooded suburb in a state that was vaguely one of the 50 it was a massachusetts but it was pretty and calm, like Oregon, and we did go to school for a short period of time. In the middle of the night, with no warning or explanation, we packed up the bus and left this house. Oh. 
A rumor was spreading amongst us kids that our dad was trying to gain custody. Kathy started it after she overheard a telephone conversation with Diana and one of her sisters. I didn't know much about my dad, but I would have gone to live with him, and I'm pretty sure Tony would have gone as well. We were really getting sick of living this hippie nightmare. The other rumor spreading, ascertained from covert conversations between Paul and Diana, was that the Department of Social Services was on our tail. Our schooling was in shambles, and several states were catching on. We were always the last to arrive and the first to leave. Never enough time to make friends or enemies. But it might have been neither of these. We might have packed up in the middle of the night because the rent was due, or maybe crazy Diana just got another hair up her ass and needed to blow out of town. Who knew? The only thing that could be said for sure was goodbye to a house that I thought had great potential. State Unknown. Back on the road, I kept my eye on Diana. Her demeanor had grown even more brittle, and I needed to mind my P's and Q's around her. She had ramped up the insults toward me. You're fat, you're ugly, you have a big mouth, and you should go take a long walk off a short pier. And in the process of on-alert observation, I noticed that her beauty had faded. The black-rimmed glasses she wore intensified her critical scowl, which was not the least bit softened by her short and choppy haircut. Her once luminous complexion was blemished with pockmarks, as if her internal struggles were eating her from the inside out. At last, we pulled into a campground, and Paul unloaded the sewage holding tanks while Diana made green pepper and onion sandwiches. There was something odd about this campsite. Woods surrounded it, but the sites themselves were in a flat and open environment, like a fairground. The atmosphere was dynamic, and there were very strange people strolling about, but they didn't seem like hippies. They were overly animated and wore brightly colored outfits, hustling and bustling with music and juggling around every corner. This could have been a dream, but in my mind, I think we were camping with the circus. We enrolled in a school that had the largest American flag I'd ever seen blowing in the wind. It whipped with a stern urgency that contradicted the environment where we had parked the bus. At our new school, I was assigned a guidance counselor who gave me a warm welcome and a tour of the school. I latched onto her immediately. She was my very own lady, and the other kids didn't seem to have her like I did. She gave me lots of attention, but I needed more. We had talks in her office, and this is where my imagination flourished. I told her the most outlandish of lies, but never the equally bizarre truth. One of my lies emerged when she asked me where we were from. I told her that we were from Ireland, but we left there because my old school used to pull out eyelashes as a punishment. I watched her intently as the words just spilled out of my mouth. I was making it all up as I went along, and I was thrilled because she seemed to believe me, and she acted like I had taught her something new. 
something she had never heard before. She walked me back to my class and then whispered something into my teacher's ear. My teacher gave me a look of quizzical concern, and then she smiled at me. I loved my new ladies. They never doubted me, and I looked forward to going to school every day just so I could see them. But without warning or goodbyes, we soon packed up and left the fairground. I felt guilty. I knew it was my fault. My counselor must have told my mom about the lies. They weren't the kind of lies that would hurt anyone, and my mother should have been happy, because I never told on her. But nonetheless, we skedaddled out of the campsite with a sinister and perverse quiet, while my mother treated me with a sickeningly sweet kindness. I didn't like it. Her niceness wasn't nice at all, and often meant the opposite. Massachusetts. My comprehension of geography had long since blurred due to the constant need to readjust, so I didn't even bother to find a context for the next parking lot we pulled into. I just stared at the red brick building that had a flat roof and spoke softly the word institution. Sitting in the driver's seat, Paul turned his body around to face me, and with the dryness of somebody recounting the mundane items they had for breakfast, he said, You'll be staying here for a while to see how things work out. I had no idea what he meant by that. What kind of things needed to be worked out? Neither he nor Diana elaborated on the subject, but they did tell me that I was going to foster care. You will twin you.